0: You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit Driven. Are you ready for some time in the Book of Acts? Then please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you this morning. Thank you for your presence with us and that you've given us so much to be thankful for. And now, Lord, as we look ahead, to this Christmas season, we pray that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, so that we can make the most of every opportunity that you give to us to bring your gospel to this needing world. But Lord, we can't bring it to a needy world until you first bring it to our lives. So do it, Lord. Speak to us this morning about Jesus and his great work for us and through us now to this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, this morning we're just going to talk about the first four verses because there's so much for us to deal with in Acts chapter 2 that we're going to actually take the chapter over a few weeks. So beginning now, the first four verses, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This section begins with the disciples, and not only the 12 disciples, get that out of your mind. There's not 12 gathered together in the upper room. There's about 120 uh, men, women, some who were very close followers of Jesus, others who had just drawn close to him in this time right after his resurrection. But the number of the disciples after Jesus had ascended to heaven was about 120 people. So there they are gathered together in the room. And that's where we begin here in verse one. But by the end of verse four, there they are having been filled with the spirit and speaking in tongues. Now, I'm not going to deal this morning with the speaking in tongues aspect of this, because we're going to deal with that the next time we're together in the book of Acts. But I want to deal specifically with the described to us in these first four verses about them being all filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice, first of all, that it happened on the day of Pentecost. Did you see that there in verse one when the day of Pentecost had fully come? Now, Pentecost was a Jewish feast that was held 50 days after Passover and it celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It was sort of a start of the harvest time festival. And in the Jewish rituals at that time, the first sheaf that was reaped from the barley harvest was presented to God because the barley harvest comes earlier than the wheat harvest. It was presented to God earlier in the year, right about the time of Passover. But now at Pentecost, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, which was what's more substantial and much more important to the economy of Israel, that was presented to God. Therefore, Pentecost is also called, in the book of Numbers, the day of the first fruits. By Jewish tradition, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but Jewish tradition does. It also tells us that the day of Pentecost was the day that God presented the law to Moses and Israel which is sort of interesting, because here we see in the Old Testament conception, the law came on the day of Pentecost. Now we see it here in the book of Acts that the spirit of God is poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Now one other interesting thing I find about the day of Pentecost from the book of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 23, starting at verse 15, tells us that when they offered a special offering on the day of Pentecost, that the priest was supposed to bring before the Lord Two loaves of bread. Now, don't think in your mind like a loaf of wonder bread, right? That's a fairly modern invention. Uh, Two loaves of bread would be two, like, nice, thick pita bread kind of things, right? And he would bring those two loaves of bread before the Lord and wave them in a wave offering before the Lord, which we think was something like this, just sort of waving it before the Lord as a way to symbolically offer. I mean, you weren't going to throw it up to heaven and pray that God catch it or something like this. So you would wave it before the Lord. But what was very interesting about that offering of bread on the day of Pentecost is the loaves were specifically said to be leavened, which was unusual in the sacrificial system of Israel. You wouldn't put yeast or leaven in an offering that you would make to God. But they did it on this. And most people believe, and I would agree with this, that the reason why is it was a prophecy of the fact that Gentiles would come into the church. Because notice they would wave what? Two. Two loaves before the Lord. One for the Jewish aspect of the church, one for the Gentile aspect of the church. These two loaves that came in on this birthday of the church, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. So here in the midst of all this celebration, all this thing going on at the temple, and I believe that this happened in the upper room, not very far from the temple courts. Matter of fact, I've thought about this, and I can't prove it biblically, but just sort of follow along in your mind as I think of this. Where was this upper room? Now, if you go to Israel today, they'll take you to a place that's called the upper room. I don't think that that was the upper room. Not that it's not a nice upper room. It's a nice upper room with nice acoustics and all of that. But the problem is, is that it's not set today, and it doesn't seem to have been set in ancient times, in an area where a lot of people could gather. I mean, there's a lot of houses thickly situated around the area where that upper room is. And I can tell you this, that wherever this upper room was, it was at a place where thousands of people could have access to. Because before the end of Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to thousands of people. How do we know it was thousands? Because 3,000 people got saved. And I'm taking it for granted that not everybody who heard him got saved. So what was the crowd that he was speaking to? 4,000? 5,000? I don't know, but 3,000 were saved. Now, how could Peter speak to that many people? Well, I believe that one of the most logical places for that gathering to be was at the very temple courts. You have to remember, in ancient Israel, there in the days of the second temple, the temple area was much bigger than the temple itself. The temple itself was actually a fairly or relatively small building set upon a much larger temple court system. And there were actually rooms and porticos and places like this all around the temple area. I believe that it was very near to the temple where the upper room was and where Peter spoke to that great multitude that was gathered. But there they all were on the day of Pentecost. The, the the Levites and the priests were offering their special offerings that they were commanded to do on the day of Pentecost. And now it says, verse 1 again, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. By the way, did that strike you just live that it would, that it would use that kind of phrasing there? Had fully come. I mean, what does it mean for a day to fully come? Well, I think, you know, I mean, Christmas is coming up, isn't it? Think about what it's like for a little child, you know. It seems like it's Christmas, it's Christmas, but it's not Christmas, it's not Christmas. But when Christmas finally comes, it is fully come, right? The day has finally arrived. And you have this sense of anticipation, emphasis on this very day of Pentecost. And I have to say, I can't read this without thinking that something really amazing was happening in the life, in the minds, in the hearts of these disciples on this day of Pentecost since the time that Jesus ascended to heaven. Get it straight in your mind here. Ten days before this, Jesus had ascended into heaven. Right in front of the disciples' eyes, he lifted off from the ground and he went going, going, gone, right there in their vision so that they knew that he had gone to heaven and that he wasn't going to come back again until he returned in glory as he had promised. But he told them before he left, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, this glorious coming of the Holy Spirit, you wait in Jerusalem until that happens. Now, please remember that the disciples were not strangers to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus told them, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit, they didn't look at one another and say, Holy Spirit, what's that? We don't even know what he's talking about. No, no, they they were not strangers to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, remember, the disciples saw the work of the Holy Spirit constantly in the life of Jesus. Did they not? If there was ever a man who lived his life in utter dependency upon the Holy Spirit and his power within, it was Jesus himself. The disciples had the best view anybody could have of what a spirit filled life looked right up close. They had seen it at work in the ministry of Jesus. But secondly, the disciples had also experienced something of the power of the Spirit as they had stepped out and served God. Do you know one of the most interesting things that Jesus ever did with or for, however you want to describe it, with the disciples, was he sent them out two by two to do an amazing work all over the region of Galilee. Jesus looked over the thickly populated region of Galilee and he said, there's more ministry work here to do than I can do, so I want to take these disciples, I want to break them up into groups two by two, and I want to send them out into all the villages of the Galilee area, and I'm going to send them out with an empowering of the Spirit of God. And they went out. And when the disciples went out and did this work, they saw God do significant and amazing things. Why? Because the disciples were working in this ministry of the Holy Spirit. So they weren't strangers to it. They they had heard Jesus promise a new coming work of the Holy Spirit on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They had also received the Holy Spirit in a new way after Jesus finished his work on the cross. John chapter 20 tells us this. After Jesus finished his work on the cross, he met with his disciples. Very soon after he had risen from the dead, he met with them and he looked at them. And the Bible says, again, it's very marvelous in John 20, how it says this. It says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And as we've said before, I believe that if Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you know what happens? You receive the Holy Spirit. And so again, this, this whole thing on Pentecost, it was not their first experience. They had a whole background. They had a whole history with the work of the Holy Spirit, a familiarity, a contact, a ministry of the Holy Spirit before. But it had not come upon them in the measure that it would come upon them in the day of Pentecost. And there they were gathered in Pentecost. And as it says, interestingly, in verse 1, until the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, I reconstruct this in my mind, and don't you think that it must have run something like this? Jesus ascends to heaven. He tells the disciples, you guys wait in Jerusalem until this outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the promise of the Father. You do that. You wait. And when they go back to Jerusalem that afternoon, the very afternoon that Jesus had ascended to heaven, don't you think they were pumped up? Yeah. Jesus said, it's going to come. Yes, Lord. And they go back. And can you imagine? That was probably the best prayer meeting they had ever had in their lives. Oh, Jesus, now you're in heaven. You're praying for us. We pray to you. Send the Holy Spirit. And don't you think that it would have been in their minds that it's going to come that afternoon, right? Jesus, you're so good. You ascend to heaven. You said, Jesus, that you ascend into heaven and you're going to send down the Holy Spirit. So send him, Lord. It'll come. And what happened that afternoon that Jesus ascended when they went back to Jerusalem and had their prayer meeting? What happened? Well, nothing of note in the scriptures, right? I'm not going to say nothing happened. You know, I think something good happens whenever you have a good prayer meeting. But the Holy Spirit was not poured out. So then they think, okay, Lord, it's all right, you know. We'll come back. We're going to pray again the next day. Let's get together tomorrow morning. Let's pray together. So they get together tomorrow morning. and They say, yes, Lord, now we know it's a new day. You're a God who does new things. Send him, Lord, today on the new day, the day after Jesus ascended to heaven. What happened? Nothing. The Holy Spirit was not poured out. Now, I just try to follow the thinking of the disciples. And don't you think their thinking would have gone something like this? Oh, Lord. I know what you're doing, God. The third day, that's when the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, right? Why didn't I see it now? Why didn't I see it before? Jesus, you were crucified and you rose from the dead with power and glory on the third day. Oh, Lord, can you imagine the anticipation when they got together for the third day? It was like, yes, here it is. And what happened on the third day? Nothing. Again, nothing of note in the scriptures. I'm not going to say that nothing happened in the prayer meeting, but nothing of note recorded in the scriptures. Now, again, I don't want to read too much psychologically in the disciples, but I just can't help myself a little bit by thinking, don't you think there's a little bit of a letdown after the third day and nothing happens? Day four, day five. Okay, guys, let's keep praying. Jesus, you told us to pray. And then around day six, you're thinking this. Oh, God, I know what it is now. Of course. What would it be? Day seven. That's when you're going to send it. Yes. Because you're a God of order and perfection. And that's it. And on the seventh day, you completed your creation. So you're going to send it now, Lord. Here it comes. And on day seven, what happened? Nothing. Then you're thinking, day eight? Day of new beginnings? I don't know what's going on. Day nine. Listen, ten days. Days is a long time to wait for something when you don't know when it's going to come. Now, if you know something's going to happen in 10 days, right? Well, that's not so bad. You just wait for it. If Jesus would have ascended into heaven, uh, crawling up, and he's there, he is, he's carrying up in the sky, and he shouts down to them, he's being carried up, it's going to come on Pentecost. (laughs) He didn't say that. And so, what did they have to do? They had to wait and wait and endure. And friends, I can only imagine the kind of deep spiritual work that God was doing in the disciples over those 10 days. What kind of, um, maybe sort of, healing of relationships was going on, right? Because these were men who had had a lot of conflict one with another, right? What, what kind of deep spiritual care and ministry was happening one to another? What kind of death to self was happening. Because I believe in those 10 days, they had to pretty much say, okay, God, we're done trying to figure out your day. It's not going to happen on the afternoon. It's not going to happen on the next day. It's not going to happen on the third day. It's not going to happen on the seventh day. Okay, it's finally, it's Lord, whenever, Lord, whenever you want to send this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit, that's fine for us. We're just going to keep seeking you until you send it because God, we know that you have your own schedule. You have your own timings. You see what we can't see. You know what we can never know. You know your timing, Lord. So we're not going to give up. We're just going to wait on you and have a patient expectation of faith that you will send the spirit when the time is right. And that's exactly what they did. But notice They all stayed together during this time. Look at verse 1 again with me. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That was a work of God. Because these disciples, as we previously pictured them, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, you would have read something like this. They were all together in one room for, for 10 days and they were at each other's throats. But that wasn't it, was it? No, God was shaping, God was moving, God was was molding the lives of these men. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of how we have to have the right attitude of heart when we wait upon the moving of the Spirit of God. We, We don't call up to God and say, Lord, here's my schedule, you work according to it. Lord, here's my calendar. You send it on this day. No, it's an absolute dying of self and submitting to God and say, God, I know that you will do it. I know that you promised to do it, but I will wait upon you for the time that you will send it. So doesn't this tell us something beautiful? The the, the Holy Spirit is often promised before he comes, right? And, And the Holy Spirit is very much worth waiting for. But, but he doesn't necessarily come according to our expectation, which, by the way, we would expect with the outpouring of the gift of the Spirit, knowing that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a power. So much of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, both as individually as a congregation, is simply keyed to this great idea, this great scriptural truth, that he's a person, that he's not a power to be manipulated. You don't cast the Holy Spirit out this place as if he's electricity or some spiritual force that's detached from the person of God. No, he's a person who moves according to the will and the wisdom and the plan and the sovereignty of God. And all of that, he's a person full of love and care and concern for the people of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if this shows us anything, it shows us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not given according to formula. It's also shown that we don't earn the gift of the Holy Spirit by our asking. You ask very intensely, very earnestly. That doesn't earn you the gift of the Holy Spirit. No, he's given freely as God loves to give. And so they are all with one accord in one a place. They're gathered together. They're sharing the same heart. They're sharing the same love for God, the same trust in his promise. They're sharing the same geography. None of them bugged out and said, hey, forget this. I'm going to go out to Galilee again. No, they all did it. And as they stayed there, we understand this to be a beautiful prayer meeting. Now, I don't see a mention of a prayer anywhere in verse one. Do you? Except if you were just to say, well, uh, gathered together in one accord applies that they were in prayer, but it's just the implication there. But that's what they were doing, is it not? They were praying. And friends, listen, if prayer does anything, prayer is a beautiful expression of our dependence upon God, right? You may say that you depend upon God, but the true measure of your or my or anybody's dependence on God is how much you pray. Because prayer is that tangible expression of dependence upon God. And friends, this is the glorious truth. You depend upon God and He won't let you down. And that's why we need to pray more and more. Prayer is just simply that. It's a simple, tangible way that we express the fact that I depend upon God. And friends, if you or I, if we claim to depend upon God, but, but our lives are actually prayerless, it gives the lie to that claim, does it not? It says, no, there's something wrong with that claim that we were... Uh, really depending upon God. So now we come to verse two, it says, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now notice suddenly it came somewhat unexpectedly. I don't know if you can say that something came suddenly after 10 days, right? But that's exactly how it was. There they were, waiting upon the Lord for ten days. But then when it came, it caught everybody somewhat by surprise. It came suddenly. In in other words, they say, okay, Lord, send it now. And then it happened. But no, there they were, just seeking God, dying to self, yielding themselves before the Lord. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now, I want you to notice this very carefully in verse 2. Let's read it again together. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Friends, please notice, verse 2 does not tell us that a wind came into the room. It wasn't a wind. It wasn't like, oh, hang on, everything's blowing away and all this. No, no, no. No, it was the sound of a wind. And it was the sound of something that sounded like a wind. And not just any wind, but a rushing, mighty wind. A fast wind. A wind that had power and strength to it. Now the association of this sound of a rushing, mighty wind with the filling of the Holy Spirit is very significant. Because it probably has connection with the idea that in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language, as a matter of fact, it's true for Latin as well, that the word for spirit is the same word for breath and wind. They, they share the same word. Spirit, breath, wind. And if God wanted to send them an assurance of the fact that I am now sending forth the Holy Spirit to fill you, what more logical, tangible expression could he give than to fill the room with the sound of a wind blowing? They heard it. It's just like, wait, do you hear that? Suddenly there came this great sound that a wind was And it seemed very strange because the sound was there, but the wind wasn't there, right? You could hear the sound but you could not tell that the wind was blowing. And here the sound from heaven was the sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the disciples. Now again, since these men had a biblical background, a biblical education, it would have connected in their mind with so many things from the Old Testament. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it was the Spirit of God, the the breath of God, the wind of God that blew over the waters of the newly created earth. That's what you find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 2, it's the Spirit of God that breathed in Adam, that wind, that breath that breathed in Adam and that gave the first man life and made him a living soul. Or maybe their mind turned to Ezekiel chapter 37, where the Spirit of God was the breath of God, the wind of God, moving over the dry bones of Israel, bringing them to new life and new strength. And friends, look at this. When you look at verse 2, it tells you a lot about how the Holy Spirit can move. It says suddenly. Sometimes God moves very suddenly, right? And then he moves with the sound. Sound is very interesting, Right? Sound is real. Nobody can doubt that sound is real. Sound is real, but it's immaterial. It's something, if you want to say, spiritual. And I know it's not spiritual in that sense. Uh, uh, scientists could tell you, you know, there's actually sound waves that reverberate through the air, and these things are material, but they're material in a way, and all that. But, but as far as the human eye and human experience, they're invisible, right? It's very much the idea of here's something that's real, but it's immaterial. It can't be touched, and it came by the ears. And notice it also says that this came from heaven. Isn't that interesting? The the, the sound of a mighty wind. It wasn't of earth. It came from heaven, and it was mighty. It was full of force, coming with great power. So you can just picture these 120 people, right, in for this prayer meeting. And and instantly they're stirred. Whoa, look, we hear this sound. Where has it come from? By the way, God has used just this kind of thing to prompt the faith of many people before. Somebody that I knew quite well had a marvelous experience with the Holy Spirit where there they were one day just praying in their room at their home, just praying, God, fill me with your spirit. I need more of your spirit. And I don't know if you've ever felt that desperation before, God. God, I just need to be filled with your spirit. And suddenly they heard the sound of a wind blowing. And they were like, oh, God, this is it. You're just sending it. Yes, Lord. And they received it and had a beautiful experience with the Holy Spirit. And they found out later that it was just the heating and air conditioning system being kicked on at their house. You know how it is, you know, if you're somewhere near the vent, you hear the sound of the wind coming through, right? You might say, well, that wasn't the Spirit of God at all, it was just the thermostat being triggered. No, but isn't it interesting the Spirit of God will use such things, right? He'll use such things as a prompting of faith to say, yes, this back here, this is for you and I'll pour out my spirit upon you just as I would upon them. And that's what happened with the sound of the rushing mighty wind. But that wasn't the only phenomena. Did you notice what happened in verse three as well? It says, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. Now notice appearing over each one of their heads, we assume, right? It doesn't actually say, I mean, theoretically, it could have been on the shoulder or something like that. But the way we envision this is that over each one of their heads, there appeared what looked to be like a tongue of fire. And this was sitting upon each one of them. Now, please notice this, friends. Don't miss this. This wasn't actual fire, just as much as the sound of the wind wasn't an actual wind, but just the sound of it that God had divinely put there, the, the, the tongue of fire was not actual fire. Look, the text tells you this. Look at verse 3 again. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And that phrasing means it was like fire, but not actually fire. How do we know this? Because their heads weren't lit on fire, right? Could you imagine that? That would be a healing service necessitated right there. Would it not be? Everybody has their hair burnt off. No, but the nearest way that they could describe it, it wasn't exactly fire. It was a special kind of fire, but it wasn't actual fire on them, but something that was as of fire. This was something like the fire at the burning bush that Moses encountered in Exodus chapter 3, right? That that fire that was in the burning bush, it was fire, but it wasn't fire because it wasn't consuming the bush. It was sort of a a miraculous God-sent fire. It was fire that didn't act like real fire. Now, in the scriptures, the idea behind the picture of fire is usually purification. Because a refiner would use fire to make pure gold. Or or fire can burn away that which is temporary, leaving only that which will last. And this is an excellent illustration that the principle of the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's not just for abstract power, but it's for purity. It also shows us this, that this is a way that God was pouring forth his pleasure. You know, in certain places in the Old Testament, God showed his special pleasure with a sacrifice by doing what? God would show his pleasure with the sacrifice by sending down fire from heaven. That he would light the sacrifice. That the priest wouldn't have to bring fire to the sacrifice, but God would send it from heaven to show in a special way, hey, I am here and I am pleased with this sacrifice. And you could say that this experience of the followers of Jesus at Pentecost, it's another example of God sending fire from heaven to show his pleasure, his power, and in the end, it descended upon these living sacrifices. But I think that verse 3 has a marvelous emphasis that we shouldn't miss. It says there in verse 3 that there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. Now, I think that that is extremely significant. You see, many times in the Old Testament, you have a filling or an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Israel as a whole or upon specific selected individuals to do a certain work at a certain time at a certain place. But here you have something different. You have a broadly cast outpouring of the Spirit that sat upon each one of them, because theoretically it could have been different, could it not? Could have not God sent like one big fireball, so to speak, right? Instead of one individual tongue of fire. But one great mass of fire that stood in the whole room and was over them all collectively, right? He could have done that, but he didn't. He could have also said this. He could have said, well, I'm going to send forth tongues of fire and I'm going to put those tongues of fire over the heads of my apostles, because they're special. And I want everybody to know they have the Holy Spirit, but, but not the rest of the, what would it be, 12 minus 120, uh, 108 people, right? No, no, he didn't do that either. But what did he do? He gave those tongues of fire to show that in a special way, that gift of the Holy Spirit resided upon each and every one of those who were a disciple of Jesus Christ. Each and every one. Now friends, this is totally unusual and mind-blowing according to the history of the Holy Spirit as we've experienced previously in the Bible. Because no longer was the Holy Spirit given in just little places, in little situations, to, to little individuals as they would do their work. But no, this is a broad outpouring upon every individual as Peter would later explain from the prophecy of Joel that it was an outpouring of the Spirit upon all flesh. And that's what's emphasized. Look at it right there in verse four, where it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we're fascinated sometimes by this idea of this ability to speak with other tongues. And we'll talk about that the next time we're together. Don't worry about that. But I don't want to focus upon that for a moment right now. Just look at the first part of verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. This is an interesting and thrilling phenomenon. This rushing mighty wind and the tongues as of fire, those were only the unusual temporary phenomenon, but the true gift was that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I find this very interesting. That nowhere previously in the Bible and nowhere after in the Bible... Do we ever have this phenomenon of a tongue of fire over somebody's head? Nowhere. You don't have it before this. You don't have it after this. I think this is God's way of saying that this was an unusual phenomenon that was made for that moment. And I think that it would be wrong for somebody to expect that today. I think it would be wrong for somebody to come before God. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I'll know that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit if I see a tongue of what looks like fire above my head. I think God's pointing this out to us, saying that this was an unusual phenomenon. But listen, you can experience the true gift even without having a tongue, as it were, of fire over your head. We, just as they, we can all be filled with the Holy Spirit. And friends, I think this is the great message of this text. This is something for each one of us. Whenever we talk about the work and the movement of the Holy Spirit, I always keep in mind that people come from all different life experiences and all different kinds of backgrounds. And I think that there's not a single Christian that would say, well, I don't need the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has a sense that they need the Holy Spirit. But every Christian is aware that their experience of the Holy Spirit might be different than somebody else's experience of the Holy Spirit. And you want to know, do I have the experience of the Holy Spirit that God wants me to have? Friends, this is the key thing for you. You need to keep your heart very open to whatever experience the Holy Spirit would give you. But you, just like I, your heart says... Lord, I'm open for whatever you have for me. I just want it to be from you. Is that your heart? It certainly is mine. And to say, God, I don't need to have a replication of a tongue of fire over my head, but I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I need that to look like in my life whatever you want it to look like. And friends, I think that when we say this, We've got to be ready for God to be able to do some things that might be unexpected in our midst. But that's exactly what he did in the life of the disciples. There they were. They were all gathered together, waiting there because Jesus had promised. There, waiting there because they were waiting in faith for this promise, that they waited for God's timing, that they waited together in, un- in great unity. And then they waited together as God poured out his Holy Spirit upon them friends, this work of the Holy Spirit is so essential that Jesus said it was better than his actual physical presence. Can you think about that just for a moment? What an amazing statement that is of Jesus to make. He said this in John chapter 16, verse 7. He said this to the disciples. This was before He was betrayed. This was before he was crucified. He was warning his disciples in that great discourse that he had with them before uh, the, the Last Supper, at the occasion of the Last Supper. He looked at his disciples and he said this, It is to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, then I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. Do you understand what that equation says? It says that it's better for us to have the presence of the Holy Spirit right here with us than it is actually to even have the physical presence of Jesus with us. Now, I, I have to say that that's a little hard for me to receive right away, because in my mind, I think there could be nothing greater than having the physical presence of Jesus right here with us. In my mind, there could be nothing greater than for Jesus Christ in his bodily presence right here, right now to be preaching this sermon this morning, Right or actually not this sermon, he'd be preaching one much better, but you get the idea, right? He'd have the pulpit. Wouldn't that be the best Sunday here at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara ever? Could you imagine, this room is filled right now, could you imagine how filled it would be if Jesus was the guest speaker this morning? You know, now appearing here at Calvary Chapel, do you know how long it would have to put us on the calendar in order for us to get online to have Jesus come and speak here this morning? I mean, because he'd be wanted all over the world, right? And it would be the best Sunday ever, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be the best? I mean, people would be here for first service, for second service. They'd come back in the evening for the third service. It would be be the most amazing thing ever, the day that Jesus came and was the guest speaker and was the preacher. And then what would happen next week? Next week, I would stand behind this pulpit. (laughs) And I could preach the best sermon that I would ever preach in my whole life. And what would you say? You'd say, well, it was okay. <laughs> but it wasn't Jesus. And you're right, it would be not Jesus, right? And I could see that as glorious it would be it is if we had Jesus physically here in his bodily presence as the guest speaker this morning with the most glorious Sunday. And I think that the next Sunday would be the most depressing Sunday in the world. Why? Because if there was anything you would say, you would say, Jesus is not here. You know, this Sunday is off in China or off in India or off, you know, on the East Coast, something like that, right? You'd follow his itinerary around on the Internet, wouldn't you? Well, here's the deal. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, now we know that we know that he can be with us now all the time. And he fulfills his glorious promise. What's that promise? That wherever two or three are gathered in mine, there I am in the midst of them. Right there in the midst. Where's Jesus right here? He's right here in our midst. And I love that phrasing in the midst, somewhere in the middle of us. Friends, Jesus isn't just here up on the platform. He's not more here on the platform than he's out there. He's right here in our midst. That's where he is. And he sent forth the Holy Spirit as something even more glorious, more beautiful, more powerful than when he was here on this earth in his bodily presence. Don't you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You should. Now I can't promise to you the sound of a rushing mighty wind. I certainly can't promise to you a a, a cloven tongue of fire upon everybody's head. No, 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 no. But what I can promise you is the enduring gift that goes far beyond those one time phenomena. I can promise you that the Spirit of God will fill your life. But here's what you have to do first. First, you have to be a Christian. You have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I suppose if I'm speaking to this many people on a Sunday, I can't assume that everybody in this room here has made that kind of surrender to Jesus Christ and put their faith on who he is and what he did for them on the cross. I mean, I could just imagine there could be somebody here. And you say, well, yeah, I want this Holy Spirit thing. But but you've got to get your life straight with Jesus Christ first. You've got to come by the way of the cross recognizing who he is and what he did for you on the cross, that on the cross he took the punishment you deserved and that he bore the brunt of the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to bear it. And you need to trust in that to be the covering and the cleansing for your sin. You put your trust in who Jesus is and you're a Christian. Then you are, if I could say this word, and it's almost a funny word to say, but I think you'll understand what I mean, then you're eligible for this gift of the Holy Spirit. But you're not eligible with it if you're not a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. That this is a gift that God gives unto his children, unto his people. And you need to come into the family of God to receive this gift. So that's step one. But step two, remember, what was it that stood upon their heads? It was a cloven tongue as of fire. Friends, as I said before, fire in the scripture so often speaks of purification. Can I just tell you something very important to remember about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? That he is the Holy Spirit. And his work, his power, his glory is most manifest in a context of life, holiness, and purity. For some of you, the greatest door you can open up to the work of the Holy Spirit of God in your life today is a work where you repent before God. You simply make yourself right with him. As the Holy Spirit has been knocking on your heart for something that you need to get right with him, you respond to that voice. Instead of just saying, no, Lord, you know, let's forget about this thing that you're telling me about. Just give me some of the power of your spirit. God said, I do want to give you the power of the spirit. Why don't you get holy with me first? I'm not talking about a holiness that's independent of Jesus. No, 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 I'm not talking about a holiness that you do on your own and you present to him. I'm talking about a holiness that he works in your life, but he'll work it in your life through repentance. And so, friends, here, here's where it begins. First, you're a Christian. 2nd You get your life in right with with Jesus Christ. If there's a place of holiness where your God is pointing his his, uh, spirit towards right now, you get that right with him. And thirdly, you just ask in faith. Ask in faith. And trust that God will do it. One day, three days, seven days, ten days. That's up to him, isn't it? But you just trust that the God who loves you so much will pour out his spirit upon you.